Hello, everyone. We're back with more episodes of The Envelope from the Los Angeles Times, where we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the talents behind your favorite movies and TV shows. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. So ordinarily, we'd be sharing our conversations with the talent behind some of your favorite shows in the weeks leading up to the Emmys. But with actors and screenwriters on strike, most of Hollywood is shut down for the foreseeable future. And the Emmys, well, they've been postponed likely until January. But we still have some episodes worth your time. That's right. And for our first show back, we're pulling from our vault to bring you our conversation with Melanie Linsky, who is among the list of double Emmy nominees this year. She is a second-time lead actress in a drama series nominee for playing Shauna Sadecki on Showtime's Yellow Jackets. And she also landed a guest actress in a drama series nom for her arc as ruthless resistance leader Kathleen on HBO's The Last of Us. Yes, so well-deserved. And I spoke with her around this time last year about how, you know, although she's been a prolific actress and a fan favorite for decades, her standout role in Yellow Jackets has really propelled this long overdue recognition of her talents. And for those that don't know, Yellow Jackets is part psychological horror story, part coming-of-age drama, and it follows the saga of a girls' soccer team stranded in the Canadian wilderness for nearly a year after an airplane crash. The show jumps back and forth in time, and Melanie plays one of the survivors, Shauna, in the present. As an adult, Shauna is this bored suburban housewife with a lot of inner turmoil whose past catches up with her and her fellow Yellow Jackets. Melanie was so open and honest in this conversation about her journey in this industry. But before we get into it, a bit of a warning to our listeners. About a third of the way through this episode, Melanie opened up about her struggle with an eating disorder. Here's our conversation. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your Emmy nomination. Like, how do you feel now that the rush of that morning is behind you? I feel good. I feel really excited. It was just such a shock on the day. I was not expecting it. It was a very, very exciting day, but I've had a little bit of time to process, yeah. We spoke that day uh, not long after you got the news, and I asked you how you were going to celebrate, and you said, you know, you had plans with your friend Maggie Lawson, but Mm -hmm. before that, you were going to buy a fridge. So how did that go? It didn't go well, honestly. We went and we found a fridge. (laughs) We were super excited. It was supposed to come yesterday, and then it didn't. And so oh, we were, no. yeah, and we were like, what's happening with the fridge? And they said, it's delayed until mid-September, but maybe it can be my consolation prize after the Emmys or something. <laughs> it's like, well, at least the fridge is finally coming, you know? I had to buy a fridge recently too. Do you like your fridge? I do like it. I'm scared to use the water feature just because my fear is a leak because I had a leak when I moved in Oh, and yeah. I just don't want to deal with water damage, but you know. That's adult life, I guess. It can be hard for us to trust again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get into the real reason why we're here, Melanie, which is to talk about Yellow Jackets. I mean, it must be exciting that everyone became so obsessed with it. Like, I'm curious what that experience was like for you. I'm someone who cares very deeply about critics and what critics think. So I'm on... Rotten Tomatoes reading every single review. (laughs) Like, I care, you know, I respect these people and 
So that was already, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It got such a good response. And then I never know about numbers or viewers or any of that kind of thing. It's not how my brain works. So I wasn't really sure how it was doing. But just week after week, people were tweeting at me. Old friends were reaching out to me. My group chat with my best girlfriends suddenly just became all about yellow jackets. (laughs) I was like, I come here to escape my life. I said, you guys can start another. We have a chat that's only about Real Housewives that one of our friends is not on. So, like, (laughs) I was like, do this for me with yellow jackets. Just take me off. But they all thought I was going to give the secrets away. What was going on in your life when this was presented to you? I was doing Mrs. America. Mrs. America was the first job I had after having my daughter. And so I had a newborn child in Toronto. I didn't have a nanny because I'd just been doing it by myself with Jason. Jason was working in Vancouver on a different show. I was hiring babysitters on a daily basis. It was just like a very, very stressful and difficult time. And I just said to my agent, I've got to take a break until I understand how I can do this. And I'm so tired. And Mm. she said, okay, I just, you know, this pilot just came in. And then I read the pilot and I was like, oh, no, (laughs) that's so good. (laughs) And then everything started kind of falling into place. I agreed to do the pilot. I met someone in Toronto who became my nanny and life just kind of uh, got a bit easier. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about reading that pilot? Like, was there a scene or a moment or like a piece of dialogue that really drew you in that you were like, this is something I need to be a part of? I liked, for Shauna, I liked the scene. There were a couple of moments where I was like, hmm, because she wasn't in the pilot that much. Oh, here's my child. Hi, baby girl. Hi. I love you. <laughs> I'm just to- I'm just on here talking. Do you want to say hi? Hi. Hi. This is Kahi. Hi. Here. Where's Dada? Hi, Kahi. Dada's upstairs. Oh, okay. Do you want to go find <gasps> him? Upstairs. Yeah. Okay, I love you so much. Da, 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 Bye. Da, da. Child interruption. <laughs> oh, it's my life. It's part of life. Okay, I, when I read the pilot, there were two specific moments, and one of them was like a very tiny moment where Sean was doing the ironing and watching a show that is not Jeopardy, and she like quietly answered the question and then judged the woman for not getting it right in a way that I thought was really funny. What are you? I am Paradise Lost. Yes, Linda. I am The Great Gatsby. Oh, I'm sorry. The answer we're looking for is Paradise Lost. Hmm, Linda, you dumb bitch. And with that, we'll be right back. And then in the diner with Tawny's character, with Thaisa, mm-hmm. she just... You know, she's been, like, scrubbing shit stains out of underwear earlier in the pilot. And then there's this moment where she's just like, take care of this for me. And you can see Mm. she has some kind of power that you don't know about. She's, like, tougher than you've previously thought. And I just was like, well, this Mm. is an interesting person. Shauna. I saw you on fucking television, Ty. If someone's digging... We are all fucked. Take care of it. And the 
the younger storyline and the pilot was just so fascinating to me. The Jackie Shauna dynamic, you know, the writers talked to me on our initial call about the entire arc of Jackie and Shauna and the younger storyline. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh gosh, that's heartbreaking. That's amazing. What did understanding her sort of emotional state involve for you? Like, was there work that you felt you had to do beyond the page to sort of figure out who Shauna was? Not really. If I don't feel something instinctively, there's no point in me doing it. Like I can read something and understand this is a well-written story. This is a good script. But if I don't have that little thing that unlocks in me where I feel like she's already in there somewhere, I'm fighting against my own instincts or I'm trying to like make choices or create something. It's much easier if it just kind of bubbles up from inside. (laughs) And then it's sort of later that I can put the pieces together and go, oh, okay, I understand, like, what parts of me contributed to building this character. And mm-hmm. the thing, the main thing that was different to what I usually do is that I was getting to watch Sophie Nelise, who was playing young Shauna the whole season. Mm-hmm. We were doing these table reads and I was getting to see her incredible work and what she was bringing to it and this like deep intensity and stillness that she has. And so I was just stealing all of Sophie's (laughs) stuff because I just, I think she's so powerful on camera. She's such a powerful actress. Uh And so that was a very helpful thing for me to sort of like take a lot of her physicality in the moments when Shauna really like takes her power back. I was channeling Sophie, I guess. Did you and Sophie have a lot of conversations about how to play Shauna or was it strictly through observing her that you found your way? We had conversations about the things that were important to us about her. It was important to us that she had a lot of like fundamental self-esteem, that she wasn't a person Mm -hmm. who was secretly like, I wish I was as pretty as Jackie or whatever, that she was somebody who was like, fuck that, I think I'm kind of great, you know. But she was somebody who was, like, interesting and sexual and men were interested in her. And just that she had this sort of core of belief in herself. She knows she's smart. Just things like that that we wanted to be on the same page about. I think Sophie's someone who operates from instinct as well. Like, it comes from very deep inside her. And so neither of us made choices about, like, physical things or anything like that. I think we just sort of made sure that we were playing the same person. And then there was something energetically, like the casting directors just did such an amazing job. Is it a weird dynamic as a performer to play the aftermath of Shauna's traumatic experience when it's a different actor who's portraying the formation of that initial trauma? See, Sophie and I both think that the other person has the harder job. (laughs) Like, Mm. I think she has the harder job because she's building it. She's making a lot of, like, big decisions. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for me because I don't have the full history of everything that happened in the wilderness and something will be written for the wilderness time and I'll be like, oh, okay, that's informative which is why I hound the writer as like a crazy person and try to get every piece of information. Mm -hmm. You know, last season, the thing I was obsessive about was like what exactly happened to Jackie? Like, was it an accident? Was it deliberate? Was it kind of a deliberate accident? 
did I straight up murder someone? Like when I'm having guilty flashbacks, I need to know what the emotion is, you know? So they were, they were good and they told me exactly what happened. What did you think of that sequence of events of Jackie deciding to sleep outside and Shauna not doing, you know, maybe like saying, no, no, come back or I don't know. Like, oh. how did you think of what played out? It must be hard being this jealous all the time. <laughs> what? You're so fucking jealous of me, you can barely breathe. Are you quoting beaches at me right now? What? No. I'm not jealous of you, Jackie. I feel sorry for you. I thought it was like the most tragic possible ending because it's so human. You know, teenagers make crazy choices that can have lifelong consequences and you just don't think about it at the time. You're impulsive and you're bratty and you're reactive and you just kind of jump into something and it can change you forever, you know. I'm sure everyone back home is so fucking sad to be losing their perfect little princess, but they'll never know how tragic and boring and insecure you really are or how high school was the best your life was ever going to get. But, you know, I had a friend who died when I was a teenager just from having like one crazy night that's something that's kind of like haunted me a little bit just how quickly he was gone and so that was really heartbreaking when I read that it's just like two people just being stubborn and never understanding the consequences never thinking they weren't going to see each other again not thinking like I could lose my best friend just being like well she's going to come back inside and then I'll be able to roll my eyes at her and we'll go on, you know. Sophie doing that scene where she finds her was just heart-wrenching. That's it. Get, get out. Go on, get out! No. I can't be around you. I, I can't even fucking look at you right now. Well, that sounds like your problem. So maybe you should leave. Do you think that what haunts her more than maybe some of the other things that happened on on that experience? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I think there's mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt, especially the fact that, you know, she was sleeping with her boyfriend and then pregnant and then yeah. this person dies and doesn't come back. And so I think... Shauna has guilt about a lot of different things. The survivor's guilt of coming back when she sort of feels like someone else should have is a, is a huge one. Mm -hmm. There are a, a few moments where it's clear, like, the depth of what Shauna has endured, but one that really had folks talking for different reasons was, you know, the bathtub scene. Do you still remember how to do that? It's just like riding a really gross, fucked-up bike. The way she can lie and, you know, dismember a body of her lover with, like, mm -hmm. an electric carving knife so easily is, like, it's it's it was such a striking moment and oddly comedic. Like, what did that scene reveal to you about her psychologically? I think something the writers and I were really on the same page about is how much she compartmentalizes. Mm -hmm. And how much she refuses to deal with and refuses to look at. 
And it's clear because she's been married to somebody for 20 years or whatever who she doesn't really know and she doesn't think knows her and she's never discussed it. Like at the beginning of the series, they're going to marriage counselling for the first time and things are clearly in trouble. She thinks her husband's having an affair and she's not bringing it up to him. She's just acting out and having an affair herself and doing things. Everything comes out sideways with her. So tell me, kids, how's the sex? Yeah, I, we've just, um, we've both been very busy yeah. recently. And Jeff's had a lot of late nights um, at work. And Yeah, we've been having a lot of problems with the inventory database back at the store. So I felt like it was an interesting opportunity to just show how fully she will shut her emotions down and just get on, you know, she's just like, here's my job today. Like, he just becomes a, mm-hmm. a body to her. She can't really think about it. There's one moment where, you know, Juliet is like sort of pressing her, like, who is this guy and what happened here? And she does have a moment where she kind of like starts to break down about it and says, I thought he loved me. And I think some people kind of read that as being a manipulation. And to me, it felt like the first time her brain started to be like, this is someone you cared about, by the way. This is someone that you thought that you loved. He was lying to me. He was going to hurt me. I thought that he loved me. I trusted him. Well, I needed answers. So fuck, Shauna. She has one little moment where her brain just kind of goes, she's so scared of all her lies unraveling, everything falling apart. So that was interesting. I mean, I'm someone who cries. I cry all the time. And so it's very interesting to me to play somebody who just starts to feel something and just pushes it down until she can't anymore. Mm. You talked earlier about casting, particularly with, you know, Sophie, but Mm. it's so, so crucial to the magic of the series. And, you know, fans could not stop talking about like how amazing both the casting for the adults and the younger characters playing them. What has delighted you the most about the sort of sisterhood you have all established? And in what ways has that enhanced or fueled your performance? Oh, gosh, I think for all of us, it's been a really incredible thing. I mean, you know, there's a scene with crazy old Misty, and I'm just like, oh, please, Christina doing this. Like, everybody, Stephen, who plays the coach, like, just, I mean, I'm just going to list every single actor if I keep doing this, but (laughs) everybody's so, so, so incredible, and I think everyone was excited to see each other work. We got so close in a way that, I think really informed us because we weren't together all the time. Like some of us have kids mm-hmm. and we were working in different scenes and stuff like that. So we went for, we didn't have like a physical intimacy, but we have like a knowledge of every single person's history and how we're all feeling at all times. I mean, you you were coming up at, you know, around the same time that mm-hmm. some of them were. Like, do you remember 
having thoughts about them at the time, like seeing their careers? Did you have any run-ins with them at auditions? Tony, I didn't know. Juliet, she and I didn't audition together once for something. Christina, I knew socially a little bit, but obviously I just was such fans of their work. A lot of the time I would audition for something and I would hear it's between you and someone else and it was Christina. And I was like, I know how this is going to go. That happened to me over and over when I was like in my late teens and early 20s. I was like, who is it? It's Christina Ricci. Oh, okay. Bye. Bye, job. <laughs> always. And she always did a great job. And it was always, like, fun to watch the movie and see how good she was. But that happened a lot. I ran into Christina once at a Nick Cave concert that I went to by myself. <laughs> and she, she's so cool, you know? She's just, like, really, like, one of those people who's just, like, effortlessly cool, like Natasha Leone, uh-huh. and I always feel like a very tall, like, dork in front of them. And I remember her being like, are you here by yourself? And I was like, I can't hear you. <laughs> I just pretended I couldn't hear her. She's like, it's not loud. What do you mean you can't hear me? Are you here by yourself? And she just wanted to, like, say, come hang out with us if you are. But come I hang out, yeah. Yeah, but I just felt so dorky. I couldn't admit, like, I've come to this concert by myself. Now I think going to a Nick Cave concert by yourself is, like, very cool. Yes. But. Mm. You should have owned it. I know. I Hindsight. just couldn't. At the time, I was like, she's too cool. What if she judges me? I was a nerdy child, and it's impossible to get out of that frame of mind. Right. It's impossible. More with Melanie Linsky after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with Melanie Linsky, who is nominated this year for Best Lead Actress in a Drama Series for her role in Yellow Jackets, where half the timeline takes us back to the 90s era. Melanie, so young Shauna's timeline takes place in 1996, and I'm curious for you, like, coming of age in Hollywood around that time, what was it like for you? I remember, like, New Zealand is a pretty progressive feminist country. And so I felt very empowered in New Zealand. I felt like a very free person. I felt like I had a lot of agency. I felt like I had a lot of options. I was always sort of the one, like, breaking hearts and stuff like that, being like, I'm done with you now. (laughs) And coming to Los Angeles... It was just a whole other world for me, like, at that time. I think the first time I came to do auditions, I was maybe 18, 17 or 18, where I stayed for a couple of months, and it was a real shock. It was really hard. Mm. Getting a lot of feedback about the ways I was not right, the ways my body wasn't what they wanted. I didn't wear enough makeup. My clothes weren't tight enough. If my clothes were tight enough, my body had problems like people were so thin and I was Mm. like a tiny little person at that time but just always told like not enough not enough and it was very demoralizing it was difficult it sort of stripped me of that confidence that I had you know I was shy in a lot of ways I was filled with all kinds of self-doubt like most young women are 
but there was something innate where I didn't really question myself and then I got here and it made me really just be like, oh gosh, I guess I am not what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I know you've talked about how you developed an eating disorder and I'm just sort of curious, like what was the journey like to stop trying to be someone else? Like what what was the turning point for you? Well, I had an eating disorder from the age of 12, like honestly, when my body started changing Um, and then it just got progressively worse. And then working in this industry and being literally judged against women who were completely different body types to me, but just got worse and were really, really ramped up for a few years. And I met somebody on a movie and moved in with him as, (laughs) as was my way in my early 20s. Like we live together now. So I had this boyfriend and he, you know, found out that I had an eating disorder because it's hard to hide. And he was just heartbroken. And he was just like, I don't want this for you. And he was trying to, you know, he's trying to say, You're beautiful, you're perfect. That stuff, you don't hear that stuff when that's not how you feel right. about yourself. So he started to do weird stuff where like he would cook for me and not let me watch him cook. So I couldn't control it. And it was really upsetting. But then I would eat it. <laughs> and then he would be like, just don't go to the bathroom. Because I wasn't like a binge eater, but I would eat something and then I would get rid of it. And I remember one day he he like started crying and he just said, it's so violent. So violent mm-hmm. what you're doing to yourself. And I thought, God, that, that sounds so awful. It is violent. And I do want to be free from it. And it was a couple of years after that, even after we broke up, I was still working on it. But that was a turning point for me and letting go of some of the crazy control that I had, where I was able to go to a restaurant and like, get pasta, you know. Mm -hmm. And even then I, I exercised obsessively so that my body still like looked the way I thought it was supposed to look. And I was very, very, very careful And I think just over the years, I got tired. (laughs) And also, when I had my daughter, I just was like, any of the stuff that's lingering, I just don't, I don't want it for her. I don't want her to see somebody talking about their body in a way that's negative. I don't want her to see her mother being, you know, refusing things and being like, oh, actually, I can't. Like, I want her to see me eating things that are healthy. I want her to see me on the Peloton, on the treadmill, running around with her, going to exercise classes. But also I wanted to see me have a piece of cake or whatever, you know. Mm. And so far, touch wood, she's only three. She's never Mm. had any comment about her own body other than it's strong and she's growing. She tells me all the time how beautiful I am and how soft I am and my body's just kind of settled into a place that is healthy. And, you know, years and years of having an eating disorder kind of messes with your metabolism, unfortunately. But I'm just, I'm giving my body some grace and just being like, all right, it's okay to have a person who looks like a lot of women look. You know, I think it's healthy for women. And the one thing is I don't want to 
be on screen judging my own body. I want to be on screen as a free person who's just living her life in the body that she has because that's the reality. That's what we do. Don't go around my life just being like, oh gosh, if only I could fit into sample sizes. I just live. Yeah. It's a very long answer, sorry. (laughs) It's a big topic, I guess. No, it is because, you know, obviously the pressure remains like, you know, it's still Mm -hmm. as prevalent as ever. You shared the experience you had on Yellow Jackets with, you know, a crew member body shaming you. Like, do you feel like you're better equipped to navigate the pressures now? I think that I am because I've had such a wonderful response from women who feel very seen and who are like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. it's someone who looks like me, who's not talking about it. There's no scenes of Shauna being like, actually, I'm on a diet right now. You know, she's just like having sex with two different people. (laughs) and Like, you know, and I think that's been very powerful. So I feel empowered by that. At the time when that happened on the set, it was just one person who kind of took it upon themselves. And I think once upon a time, I would have really shrunk into myself gotten really, really upset and tried to starve myself and tried to do what I could. And I, like, I asked the producers, I said, like, is this coming from you guys? Like, where's this coming from? Because somebody said this to me and I just, if it's coming from you, I would rather it Mm -hmm. came directly from you. And they were just mortified. Like, we love you. We're, you know... Not only are you fine, we're excited that that's what you look like. Like, there's no part of us that's wanting you to be anything different. So please don't entertain that. So that was a relief. Well, to build on, like, the things that women go through, I mean, the show is about girls and women and trauma and survival. And it arrives at such a, you know, potent time. And I'm wondering, like, how you view its purpose against the current cultural backdrop? I mean, I feel so hopeless at this point in time. And I wish I didn't. I wish I felt more empowered, but it just feels like there are people in positions of power who are just choosing to do whatever they want, never mind what the majority of this country believes or or wants for themselves. So I just feel... Like the institutions have to change, you know, there's like such bigger picture issues. But I do think it's great in a moment where women are having their rights taken away to have a show on television that is full of like ferocious, rageful, living, real women who are just feeling things and acting out and doing things and surviving and going through traumas and I think that's a very powerful thing to be able to watch. I think it's cathartic. Do you still feel underestimated? I sometimes have times at work still where I just have to, you know, have more of a voice, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, that's, it's been a while, I guess, since that happened. But um, but no, I'm feeling, I'm feeling less underestimated. I've had a lot of support <laughs> the last year, which has been nice. Yeah. Do you think the roles that you take on in your job have shaped or changed who you are? Or 
do they often run parallel? I think that there's always like a little thread of something that I need to work out within myself. And when I was playing Betty, I realized like in between shooting the pilot and going to the series of Yellow Jackets, I was pregnant and I lost my pregnancy and had a lot of complications afterwards and gained a bunch of weight and all the sort of stuff that was like hard on my body, hard on me emotionally. And I was like in the kind of depression where like getting up every day was hard. Mm -hmm. And I think to get to go to work and play somebody who was also sitting in like a very deep depression just kind of helps you like exorcise some of your own feelings and just Mm -hmm. physically remove them from your body. And by the end of that, I felt quite sort of free in a way that I hadn't for a long time. Mm. And then I think, you know, doing Yellow Jackets, it's interesting because I have a younger version of myself in the show, but it sort of forced me to reconnect with my own younger self who was very Mm. confident and passionate and sure of myself. And it forced me to sort of tap more back into her and remember who she was and how she would Mm. walk into a room. Like, I think that's a thing that Shauna sort of finds over the course of the first season. I want to talk more about your process for a moment because I read that you use dream work, mm-hmm. you know, as a acting technique. Like, when and, and how did you become aware of it and what do you like about it? I became aware of it. I did a Sundance Lab in, I think, 2005, and there was an actor there called Tina Holmes and... Uh-huh. I've never seen anybody as good as Tina Holmes. I was watching her and I just was like, who is this person? But I said to her, Mm -hmm. tell me your secrets. Like, what do you do? How are you this good? And she was, you know, she's very humble. Mm -hmm. But she said, I have a teacher I work with. I do this creative dream work. And if you ever want to come to a class, and I started doing classes. So it's been almost 20 years. So how does it come up in your acting? I had a dream once for that I had asked myself for, for another job. And there was a moment in the dream where I had to really confront somebody. And I did something with my body language where I put my hands on a surface and I put my feet flat on the floor in a particular way. And it, in the dream, I felt so powerful. I had the sensation through my whole body of being like a queen and then confronting mm. this person in my dream. And it's funny, like, when you when you work through those things in your unconscious, it becomes like a little ritual almost. There is a way that I can mm. stand if I need to access a feeling of immense power very quickly. <laughs> There's a thing I can do that's just from this weird dream that I had where I can just put my hands wow. on something and put my feet down and it comes through my body. And there are images that you take from your dream. It's almost like flipping through a photo album sometimes before you shoot a mm. scene. There's images from dreams and images from your childhood and you just kind of like sit there and like go through. It's like you have flashcards of memory or of emotion and wow. things that will come up that you that you put into yourself and you go into the scene with these things. It's it's the most, I mean, I've never done any other kind of acting work, so I can't, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure mm-hmm. other things are very informative too but for me like this way of working is very powerful you know you talked about you don't have like formal training but you took a dramatic improv class as a what teenager right like as like a child like from 
as a child. From seven to like 16 or something, like for years and years is what I did every Friday night. (laughs) Very cool. Like, (laughs) what is that involved? Like, are there things you learned in that class that you still apply today? I think the main thing was just to get very comfortable with improv and Mm. the feeling of not being able to fail, which you really need when you're improvising. But, you know, when they came to my school for Heavenly Creatures, they didn't want to show anyone a script or say what they were doing. You know, they just were seeing if anyone was interesting. Yeah. And so they said, do you think you could improvise a scene? It was me and my friend Susie who was in the class with me. Mm-hmm. And they were like, do you know what improvise means? And we were like, mm-hmm, yep, <laughs> we're good. We've been doing this for like We've got this. eight years. Yeah. So we just improvised you know, it's like second nature to us. So it came in very handy in that instance. Uh And then togetherness as well. Togetherness was like mostly improvised, so. Really? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. You couldn't tell. It's so good. Have you used it often outside of togetherness? Like Oh, all the time, Was it used all the time? Don't look up. Improvised so much on Don't Look Up because Adam McKay loves improv. Oh, interesting. I improvised on yellow jackets, and luckily they were okay with it. Was there a, a moment in particular that stands out from the improvising? When Tawny and I are having a sleepover, the whole story I tell her is improvised about the editor of the literary magazine. It's just based on a real oh, real wow. love affair I had in college. <laughs> a true story. <laughs> a true story of two rivals. I would meet like a floppy-haired, sad-eyed poet boy who ran the school lit magazine. He was going to be, like, so smart. Oh, God. A little bit intimidated by me. We were going to be, like, full rivals until we weren't, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) But then my short stories would make him fall in love with me anyway. Yeah. That's so good. It's just fun to surprise somebody, to, like, be in a scene with somebody and then you've done the thing... And then to like tell a story so they're listening in a different way. They're like, I don't know the story. You know, it's just, it's just fun. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, you were famously plucked out of high school to star in Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. What's a, like a favorite memory or like the biggest teachable moment you had from that first experience of being on a set and making something? I was so, so, so lucky in that they gave me a ton of support. My second audition, when I went back um, and I was doing the scenes, they had an acting coach with me called Miranda Harcourt, who whose work I still use. And she directed a movie a few years ago and I acted in her movie and it was, she's great. She's amazing. So she gave me a lot of amazing techniques. Like the character was so different from me. I'm kind of like quiet and girly and... She was like, can you think of anybody in your life who has this kind of physicality? And I said, my little brother, I guess, who was four at the time, who kind of walked around like scowling like this. And she said, great. So think about Tom and be in Tom's body and do the scene. And so I kind of did an impression of my four-year-old brother from most of Heavenly Creatures. And I just remember the excitement of, you know, like we did a night shoot. It was the middle of the night and I was up and I was filming a scene like outside with all these candles around us and the big lights in the trees. And I just remember it being magic. I just, 
was like, I love this. Oh, I, I love that. What do you remember about Kate Winslet at that time? And in what ways did you guys sort of lean on each other? I felt like I was the only one leaning because she was very, (laughs) (laughs) she, you know, it was her first movie too, but she had been acting Mm -hmm. forever in commercials and television. She'd been a working actor, like paying her own bills since she was 12. And she was very, very confident. She really had a thing of like, this is my first movie and I'm just going to go like up from here. Like full belief, which she's Kate Mm -hmm. Winslet. Like you better have that belief. And I remember just being like, oh my God, can you imagine just knowing, (laughs) knowing that and just being so certain of your path. Like it was really inspiring to me and very sort of foreign also. But you've talked about how Peter Jackson and his wife and the producers of Heavenly Creatures didn't want you to get carried away with show business, right? They felt Mm -hmm. very strongly like, you you need to go back home. Like, what did you think about that then? And how do you view that now? Like their sort of concern about, you know, you maintaining a normal life? I really understand it. Like they didn't want to be responsible for somebody's life going off the rails, you know, I did well in school and stuff like that. And it's a very hard job. And I think they were kind of like, if there's anything else you can do, then you should do something else. Because this is difficult. It's very hard to make a living. You know, I was 15. I turned 16 like the week before the movie ended or something. So Uh I think at that age, it's very hard to not process that information as being criticism. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I did understand, like, they're looking out for me. But at the same time, you know, Kate was alongside me and the conversation was so different because she was already an established actress and she already had agents and was working. And so then they were like, oh, you got to meet this person at CAA and you got to do this and that. And I heard about this script that you would be so great for. And so it was a little bit painful because I was like, it's so different but then also she's very beautiful like I think they're just being realistic about her odds compared to my odds it's like an awkward chubby 15 year old who was doing their first ever job you know I think they were just like they just didn't want me to believe something could happen that was probably not going to happen and then it was like a couple of years before you did Ever After oh, right yeah. which Melanie that movie changed my life. I oh, really? That's so that sweet. Movie. Obviously, we know what it's based on, but like, I, I still have the VHS that I take with me no matter where I move. That is so cute. I love that movie. Mm. Me and my cousin are like, we're obsessed with it at the time, and still, we still talk about it. Oh my um, gosh! What? What do you remember about that experience? I mean, working with someone like Angelica Houston, Drew Barrymore, what did that feel like? I just remember for me, you know, I hadn't, I was 19 when we did that movie and I had not done anything since Heavenly Creatures. And I was petrified. You know, I'd been auditioning and just not getting things and I just was so scared and the way that they embraced me and made me feel like a peer 
and made me feel like they were excited to be working with me. And Angelica and Drew had both seen Heavenly Creatures and were both just like, it's amazing. And I just felt so loved. I felt so on their level instantly. And it was genuine, you know. And it just let me relax and do the best job I could do because I just was like, oh, okay. I don't have to work to earn their approval. Like, it's just a given Mm -hmm. And then Drew, at the beginning of the shoot, gave everybody different musical instruments. <laughs> she was like, we're going to make music together and we're a band. So I've chosen something for everybody. And she gave me a bongo drum. And then Angelica was just like, like she felt like a sister, like mm. so loving, so funny. We got very like close in a very genuine way and she just was so present always. And also I was very interested because she knew lighting and somebody would like be setting up a light and she'd be like, really? There? And they'd be like, oh, hang on, you know, and the gaffer would come back and like adjust, you know. Well, when you moved to Los Angeles, like what, in your early 20s, mm-hmm. what was your plan? Oh God, I don't know if I, my, my plan was to try to get a green card and to try to make a living. Mm. That was that was my big plan. What kind of actor did you sort of envision yourself becoming? Because I had just worked with Katrin Cartledge, she was and is my favorite actor. I was obsessed with her. I had seen literally everything she'd ever done multiple times. And then I did a movie of The Cherry Orchard and in the room, the director said, oh, today I found you and Katrin Cartledge. And I burst into tears in front of him. I was just like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? And he said, no, I cast her earlier. And just, so every moment I had with her, I just was like soaking it up, soaking it up. She she was who I wanted to be. She was my goal, Mm. work with interesting directors to do great work, play a lot of different characters, challenge myself. That that was my dream, was to have a career like hers. Well, I think it's safe to say you have. Like, what does it feel like to be in your sort of having a moment phase? Like, that's what all the headlines are saying this year. And so many of your fans are saying this is Long overdue, we've been obsessed with her forever. Like, but what does it feel like for you to sort of get this kind of recognition at this time? It's funny, my auntie, who I'm very close with, texted me the other day and she was like, I hope you're doing okay. I know this would be really hard for you because <laughs> you're so shy. It's really lovely to have people responding. If I'm being completely honest, I've been very comfortable kind of being under the radar because there's less of a fall, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like I've been Mm. kind of steadily Mm. working and I've had options and I've I've been happy. I feel good. I can go to a restaurant and most people don't recognize me. It's like, it's been a very sort of nice path. And so it's a bit scary to be exposed in a way that I haven't been. But also like, how wonderful to have people responding, have people watching something and caring about it. And like, I never dreamed I would be nominated for an Emmy. Like, honestly, I did not think that the awards stuff would be part of my trajectory as an actor. So Mm. 
it's like an extra gift that feels very, very special. feels like a huge honour. And I, like, love awards. I'm a person who watches every single awards show, so it's like... It's, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like, it's meaningless. Like, it's so meaningful to me. It means so much. Um, so it's like, it's wonderful and it's also scary. Like, there's part of me that's like, oh, God, people are going to get sick of my face. People are going to turn on me. But I'm just trying to enjoy enjoy it without uh, anticipating the worst, which is always hard for me. Well, Melanie, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and I'm so looking forward to what's to come with season two. And I really can't wait for you to get your fridge. So I hope you post about it. Um, I want to see your fridge. (laughs) I know. I'll have to take you there later. Yeah. Thank you. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production. It is produced by Mara Laser and Taya Francesca Price. Edited by Mitra Kaboli. This episode was originally produced by Hannah Harris-Green and Navani Otero. Sound design and mixing by Scott Somerville. Mixed and mastered by Mario Diaz. Our executive producer is Hiba Elorbani. Our theme music is by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Lauren Rabb, Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Sides, David Viramontes, and Vanessa Franco. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. Next week, we'll have a special episode looking at the issues behind the ongoing strikes in Hollywood. We'll see you then. <laughs>